0: The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888 486 3939. A global recession is just around the corner. The International Monetary Fund is warning that over a third of the world economy is headed for contraction this year or next. China, the Eurozone, and the United States will continue to stall. The IMF says this year's shocks will reopen economic wounds that were only partially healed post-pandemic. China is criticizing the U.S. over its decision to tighten export
1: controls that would target Chinese chip manufacturers. The restrictions will limit Chinese companies' access to advanced computer chips and slow their progress in artificial intelligence. The Commerce Department says China could use the technology to create advanced military systems and commit human rights abuses. It's being talked about as one of the toughest actions that President Biden has taken against China. Thunderous
2: explosions shook the heart of the Ukrainian capital this morning, right in the middle of rush hour, leaving streets near the central Maidan Square in flames. This was purely punitive, meant to strike terror in densely populated urban neighborhoods, close to government buildings, even hitting a children's playground.
0: You've dealt with nuclear energy for years now. So give us your sense of the role of nuclear energy potentially in getting to net zero. Well, I think nuclear can play a huge role, at least in the transition from fossil fuels to renewables. Renewables are not
2: yet base energy. They're peak shaving. And we're a 24-7 society, as is the rest of the world.
1: The world is 24-7. No disrespect to those that want to go green, but you can't do it overnight. You've got to adjust it over time and not take a nation almost to its knees because you want to go green immediately. It's got to be done like a business person would. Here's the oil and gas consumption. Here's what we want to do. Let's gradually get into it, not all of a sudden stop it
3: and prices skyrocket. And by the way, for the climate folks here, it's made the climate worse because people have this bad assumption that higher oil prices and gas prices will reduce consumption, reduce CO2. No, poor nations, India, China, Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, are turning back on coal plants, as are rich nations called Germany, Netherlands, France. We have it completely backwards.
0: This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, Here's the Financial Sense news team.
1: Mixed week for the major indexes with the Dow Industrials as the only index in positive territory with a gain of 1.2 percent, while the S&P lost 1.5 percent and the Nasdaq losing ground by 3.1. Stocks fell on Friday as banks reported lower earnings as the economy heads into a recession. There was also bad news on the inflationary front this week with CPI falling slightly to 8.2% as the administration's spending policies add to inflationary pressures. Not good news ahead of the midterm elections next month as gasoline prices are on the rise again with $8 gasoline prices recorded in Los Angeles. Markets are betting the Fed will continue with its aggressive rate hikes by raising the Fed funds rate next month by three-quarters of a point, the fourth consecutive three-quarter point rise this year. All hopes of a soft landing for the economy have been thrown out the window. Instead, a crash landing and a deep recession are now becoming more likely. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Poplava and welcome to the Financial Sense NewsHour. On deck is bullseye Craig Johnson, well, Craig has lowered his year-end target for the S&P to 3900. His former targets were 4775. Craig expects nothing more than a bear market rally with more pain coming to the markets next year as earnings for companies fall off a cliff as we head into a recession. Following Craig will be an extensive interview with Guillaume Petron. He's author of The Rare Earth Metals War and Why Green Energy Will Not Work Without Fossil Fuels. Finally, Chris Paplava and Chris Sheridan will be here with another edition of Smart Macro. But before, let's head down to Wall Street and find out what moved the markets this week with Ryan Paplava. Ryan?
2: The main catalysts this week were earnings, inflation in the Fed, and finally, the influence of the UK in global markets as of late. Well, start of the third quarter earnings season. And as many are fully aware, an important topic as of late because earnings are still growing. Yet investors have sided with a bearish mentality that a recession is on the horizon. We've seen price to earnings ratio compression in stocks mainly as a result of price. A true recession sees a sizable drop in earnings, which brings about an even greater decline in price compared to bear markets that have occurred without a recession. Fact sets, John Butters wrote an article Monday that states the S&P 500 estimates are for year-over-year earnings growth of 2.4% for the third quarter. Most of the time, companies beat those estimates because of the game they play with analysts. John said based on the average improvement during the past few earnings seasons, it is likely the index will report earnings growth between 6 and 7%. He said actual earnings growth rate has exceeded the estimates growth rate at the end of the quarter in 39 of the past 40 quarters for the S&P 500, with the only exception being the first quarter of 2020. So, the bar is set high for this quarter. Pepsi was up 4.2% post their earnings with a beat and guidance raise for its fiscal year 22. Taiwan Semi Manufacturing was up 3.9% after a good report and guidance. United Health up 0.63% with their favorable report. For the financials, things kicked off with BlackRock, up 6.6% Thursday after the results on a strong day. And despite the market pullback Friday, reporting financials J.P. Morgan was up 1.66%, Citigroup was up 0.7%, and finally Wells Fargo was up 2.3% on their respective reports. Wells Fargo stated credit card spending remained strong, up 25% from year ago, sees net interest income 24% higher this year than the last, with only a 17 basis point of net charge-offs in Q3, with losses there slowly increasing, and finally sees the mortgage market adjusting to low volumes. A hard or soft landing is what's at stake, and the stakes are high for both the bulls and the bears as the Fed continues with its foot on the Fed rate, with each meeting raising 75 basis points. This week, there was continued speculation about recession and whether the Fed could possibly begin to slow its rate hike soon. Monday, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon said he expects the U.S. to enter recession in six to nine months, adding he thinks the S&P 500 could fall another 20%. His comments were attributed with initial weakness for the day. But later that day, a speech by Fed Vice Chair Brainerd rallied the S&P 500 up 25 basis points in minutes after releasing saying, in light of elevated global economic and financial uncertainty, moving forward deliberately and in a data-dependent manner will enable us to learn how economic activity, employment, and inflation are adjusting to cumulative tightening in order to inform our assessments of the path of the policy rate, which sounded like the Fed could moderate its hikes. Following Jamie Dimon, the IMF cut its 2022 forecast for growth from 2.9% down to 27 and said the worst is yet to come. News also circulated Tuesday that China is imposing some restrictions on some Chinese cities related to COVID. Nobody was going to make any big bets on either of those topics ahead of the PPI, the CPI, and Fed Minutes later in the week. The PPI, the producer price index, was hotter than expected, up 8.5% year-over-year, while core producer price index, without food and energy, was up 7.2% year-over-year, showing that components of inflation remain sticky. The Fed minutes did not come with any surprises, just reiterating that Fed officials have been saying uh, about keeping rates high and restrictive. The market initially rose following the release and then paired its gains. The CPI Consumer Price Index report the following day came in hotter than expected, sending the main indices shooting down at the open with the S&P 500 down 2.5%, the Nasdaq down 32 and the Dow down 1.9% intraday near their lows. Bullish investors stepped in and caused the S&P 500 to swing back around up 5.4% to close up 2.6% on the day. There's been a lot of speculation in the cause. The main one I side with was that traders were cashing in on put options right after the CPI report only to buy calls. Reuters talked with Amy Wu Silverman, head of derivative strategy at RBC Capital Markets, who said investors purchased about $13 billion in notional call options Thursday, targeting around a strike of 3600 and 3700 on the S&P 500. Given stock performance over the previous earnings season, I don't blame the bulls here. The Dow was able to close 1,378 points higher off the lows that morning. Finally, let's talk about the United Kingdom, which has had a decent effect on financial markets as of late. We knew the Bank of England was planning to end its temporary bond purchases spree this Friday. There was some speculation they might push it out further, uh, as gilt yields had been sneaking higher throughout the week. But Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey told pension funds they had three days left to rebalance, sticking to the original timeline. Thursday, there were reports that the UK Prime Minister Liz Truss might scale back her fiscal plan, causing 10-year gilt yields to fall, 33 basis points down to 4.19%. And they actually, I think they fell down to 4.07 overnight. Friday, Liz Truss did partially reverse tax cuts after firing the UK finance minister and promised that she will deliver a medium-term plan on October 31st. And that's a wrap for this busy week as we kick off the earnings season with a growth estimate that has been beaten 39 of the past 40. According to FactSet, with some financials announcing this week with favorable investor responses to boot. The PPI and CPI uh, is now behind investors. And finally, uh, we've got continued machinations in the world of UK finance that shook the bond markets weeks ago. Up next, bullseye, Craig Johnson, our technician this week, will discuss what's going on in the markets and the technical setups we see ahead
4: of us. Excess liquidity is starting to collapse at quite an alarming rate, which is consistent
5: with economic slowdowns in the past. And we're starting to approach that kind of recessionary territory level. So it means that there isn't really a safety net for risk assets.
6: To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button.
0: Are you tired of earning a minimal interest rate on your investments? Are you looking for a higher rate of return on your money? Financial Sense Wealth Management has put together a portfolio of high-dividend-paying blue chips, high-quality interest-paying bonds, and preferred stocks. Our income account portfolio is specifically designed to help meet the needs of retirees, pension funds, and foundations looking to increase income and reduce taxes. To learn more, contact us at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management.
1: Joining us on the program from Piper Sandler is Bullseye Craig Johnson. Craig, let's start with the top on the day you and I are speaking. We've had a nice reversal in the market. We're having an up day. So I guess a lot of uh, listeners would want to know, is this a bear market rally or are good times ahead?
7: You know, in terms of uh, today's price action, let me put a little color on that and then try to put it into a technical sense here for all the listeners. Uh, first, very interesting. It Seems like pretty much most investors or traders came into the CPI number pretty well flat or pretty well hedged. And I think uh, because of that, we got this kind of reversal day today as people are expecting something really bad. And they got bad, but not really bad coming into this. And then the question comes down to, is this a bear market rally, relief rally? What is it? Um, I think at this point in time, nobody can call it anything more than a relief rally or a bear market rally. There would be a lot, Jim, that would have to be done uh, for this to start to really change direction. Um, technically, on the charts, we would need to see some sort of move, Jim, that would probably take the s and p to get maybe back above thirty seven, ninety eight, thirty eight hundred ish range before you start to get a little bit more enthusiasm toward this market. You got waning shorter term momentum in here. you're below a declining fifty and two hundred day moving average. Jim, I think you just got to call it a relief rally for now, and you're really not going to be able to kind of say, a new trend is emerging in terms of the S&P 500 until you finally really recapture your 200-day or that downtrend line. And Jim, that's a long ways away. That's 4,167. That's over 10% away. So I would put this in the context of uh nice intraday reversal. Not sure we're out of the woods. We'll call it a bear market rally at this point in time. And very clearly, Nancy uh, and Cantor are talking about earnings Uh, declining as you get into 2023. Those numbers on the consensus right now are around 240. And they're thinking those numbers can be somewhere 190, maybe 180 uh, Mm -hmm. as you go to 2023. So if you were to very simplistically put some sort of 15 multiple on that, that would still suggest more downside from here. So we're going to need some uh, change in tone, perhaps from the Fed for this to really put more confidence investors at this point in time Jim Craig
1: last time we were on you had a year end target somewhere around that 4700 level has that changed and what is your target for the year end now
7: so yes Jim we uh we missed the mark on that one we had a target of 4775 for year end. And we did lower that down to 3,900. Think about it more or less as I'm cognizant of the fact that we've got about, you know, about 60, uh, 50, 60, actually about 55 trading days left this year. And a move of that magnitude is just historically unprecedented. So we need to kind of sort of mark to market our year end objective. And 3,900 is where we lowered it down to. I still think there's some upside here. I do look at all our technical indicators. Uh, I look at how oversold they are at this point in time, Uh, whether it's our sector level 30 day overbought, oversold oscillators, it's our breath measures at extreme readings, it's our new highs, new lows, indexes at extreme readings. And clearly, sentiment at this point in time, when you look at the AAII numbers, is very negative. And so putting all these things together, Jim, leads me to want to be sort of leaning a little bit more positive than negative. And then lastly, uh, for all the listeners here, we've always put our year-end objectives together looking at point-and-figure objectives on all the names in the Dow and sort of translating that back over to the S&P 500. I just updated that about a week ago. I'll tell you, I see about maybe 5% more downside as I do that work. On that point and figure work, and I think how oversold things are, you've got a pretty okay risk reward in the short to intermediate term, uh, given a move from here to year end. And by the way, seasonality is also on our side, uh, looking all the way back to 1928 and the second year of a presidential term.
1: Craig, this is a real unusual year. And I'm just thinking of the standard 60 40 portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. This year, bonds have gotten hammered. Probably one of the worst bond market years I've seen since you'd probably have to go back to the 70s to see this kind of damage that was done to bonds. Any comments?
7: I think that's some of the challenges that we're now seeing around the globe is uh, that a lot of these very large bond portfolios uh, were sort of thinking that rates were only going to move a, a certain degree. Uh, they've moved a lot more. The inflation has certainly, I think, created some meaningful losses in, in a lot of the portfolios out there. And yeah, the 60-40 portfolio has definitely been challenged. It looks like to me, just kind of looking across ten-year bond yields and looking at gilts and some of those kind of uh, bonds out there at this point in time, they seem like they're they've gone too far too fast. They're ultimately going to have to back up. That would actually be somewhat helpful if we saw the yields come down in here just a little bit and certainly be uh, a little bit more supportive. But. You know, Jim, it's been a tough year all the way around. It's been a very long time since we've seen losses in both, as you said, both fixed income and equity markets at the same time.
1: And it's not just those two classes. Commodities got hammered, too. I mean, they were looking real good until going into May. Energy, I guess, is the only standout here. It's still positive for the year.
7: Oh, it's very positive for the year. When I go through and I look at our weekly PISA we put out, Jim, I can tell you, A, it's the only sector in our work that's been positive, but it's uh, in our work when we sum up all of the energy stocks in our uh, group work, Jim, like we're positive 30 some percent uh, just looking at the energy sector. The only problem for investors is it is such a small part of the market, five, six percent of all equities, not S&P equities, but all equities uh, from a bottoms up perspective. So unless people were short, or people owned nothing but energy, it has been a tough year.
1: When was the last time you saw anything like this? I think we would have to hearken back to maybe the 1970s, where you had bonds getting hammered, stocks getting hammered. But the one thing that did well in the 70s was oil.
7: Yeah, I mean, oil did certainly very well. But also don't forget Ooh. about 2002, 2003, in that period of time, too. Because uh, back then, we also saw the energy sector working, whereas a lot of other parts of the market were not working at all. And that's probably another somewhat comparable period thinking about it from a sector level perspective. But, you know, the good thing is, too, that while this is a negative year, unless this is 1970s or this is kind of in that 2000, uh, early 2000 period of time, it's not often that you go two years negative in a row in terms of the broader market indices. Um, There's only... One period back in the 70s, 73, 74, we had two negative years in a row for the broader market. But then in 2002, two three in that period, he actually went three years in a row in terms of negative returns. But that, again, is, is is more of a rare event than a kind of a common event. And I think that is a a positive out there for investors at this point.
1: Craig, has it surprised you how much we have come on the Fed funds rate, the only year that i can think that's like this you would have to go back to 1994 when they you know greenspan took the fed funds rate from three to six you look at we started out at zero and if they go as they're expected to three quarters in november maybe 50 basis points in december you're talking about a four and a half percent fed funds rate from zero all in one year i haven't seen anything like that since 1994
7: yeah, that would be a comparable period. Um, I sort of think of this, Jim, as is just frankly a, a bull in a China shop at this point in time, is kind of how I think about this, because we're talking about looking at economic data that is backward looking by a month or two. And then we know that it takes upwards of a year for some of these Fed rate hikes to actually work their way through the system. So the Fed is trying to engineer a soft landing, if possible, in the future, knowing that when they turn the ship today, it's going to take upwards of a year before it actually works and starts to actually change course. And you're trying to do that by looking at backward data. I mean, what could go wrong here, right? This is why it's very difficult when um, we're trying to extrapolate out a future scenario from looking at some of these data points, knowing how much of a lead lag. This is like... I'll put into analogy for satellites that are or spaceships that might be going around Mars. You got a multiple minute lag between leaving earth and actually having the impact reach the uh, the satellite or the ship. And that's exactly kind of what the Fed is doing here a little bit too. This is a real struggle. This is a real challenge and um, got to be very, you got to be careful in here. I, I think they are kind of going too far too fast, but again, They have their reasons, and uh, I hope they thought them well through, uh, Jim, because the damage and the fallout could be quite enormous.
1: That's the thing that really strikes me, because at least in my career, I've only seen one soft landing. They usually crash the airplane, or in this case, they're going to run into a brick wall. I mean, we're starting to see some cracks uh, in the emerging markets. You saw a little bit going on in England. You you kind of wonder – Greg, as you just mentioned, there's a lag effect. These guys should know that. And there's been two Fed governors that have come out recently that say, maybe we need to slow it down a little bit and watch and see the after effects of what we've done. They don't seem to be doing that. It's just like full speed ahead, like you said, a bull in a China shop. And, you know, I'm, I'm just looking at the debt, debt levels at the government. Because all those one tenth of a percent T bills are coming due in the next twelve months, and they're going to be going up to four percent, so the budget deficit should get bit bigger. And then all the corporate debt that's out there, as well as personal debt. So, I mean, they've really got to be careful here.
7: Jim, that is spot on, and I think this is a a very a very interesting time we're, we're living through at this point, and. You know, for all those retired folks out there, thank you for your years of service. You're also going to get about, uh, what, an 8.7% increase in your, uh, you know, Social Security checks coming out. Clearly earned, clearly deserved, but clearly not helping the Fed.
1: No. And and the other thing that makes this kind of strange, Craig, is the tight labor markets. You know, the economy has been slowing down. But the labor markets have remained strong. Now, a lot of these jobs that are being created are in the service sector, restaurants and things like that. You know, it's not like we're hiring a bunch of engineers and computer programmers. But the labor market has remained stubbornly strong. Uh, We've got uh, restaurants here that have had to close uh, in the afternoon because they don't have workers. We've got an Amazon Fresh store around the corner that's supposed to be opening. They don't have enough workers to fill the store.
7: I think there's a lot of folks that have been, um, I mean, I think COVID has certainly left a, uh, a bite in terms of the psyche for a lot of individuals. And I think a lot of those individuals also saw their portfolios having done very well. And they sort of felt like maybe now is the time for me to exit the uh, the workforce. And so you got some capable people that uh, have just decided now is the time to retire. And I think that's created some of the challenge there. The also thing too is, is that students are very busy nowadays, Jim, between sports, schools, pressures, and everything else they have to deal with uh, having one son in college and uh, another one, a senior in high school. I see it. I it's very challenging for them to actually participate in sports, continue to have good grades and really have any sort of full-time employment. It's, it's a real challenge. And so I think a lot of the high school labor force is um, sort of also to the sidelines too. So that's where I think this uh, sort of tight labor market, Jim, for a combination of these reasons, continues to be that way.
1: Which is a problem with the Fed because it wants to cool down the labor market. Craig, let's talk about a pivot or catalyst not just technically, but fundamentally, because we know, like, for example, when companies report earnings, we know the earnings estimates are way too high. As Nancy Lazar said, it needs to come down. That's obviously going to have impact on the market when companies miss their estimates, as happens when the economy is slowing down. You've got a strong dollar, which is impacting earnings overseas, What do you think the Fed would need to see? Because everything is based on what the Fed's doing right now. What do you think it would take for the Fed to pivot or at least pause?
7: I I don't think it's going to be a similar uh, situation like 2018, where they were certainly reacting to markets and and those kind of things. I don't think that's going to happen this time. Um, So what is it going to be ultimately? I think it's going to be uh, the unemployment rate going up. I, I think you got to take them at face value. I think it's got to be inflation coming down and the unemployment rate going up uh, to drive them to, to a scenario where they actually want to pause. I mean, the question is, is this more supply side or is, there, is this more demand side? It, it, seems, it seems like it's a very difficult equation for the Fed to try to resolve through monetary policy.
1: Yeah, the one thing that really strikes me, not only just on the labor force, we talked about some of the dynamics, baby boomers uh, retiring and a lot of younger people not wanting to go back into the workforce, whether it's COVID or something else. But the other thing that you have, Craig, is the Fed cannot create barrels of oil or natural gas. The only thing they can do is basically destroy demand for barrels of oil. So that, to me, seems another difficult situation for the Fed as well.
7: 100%. And uh, fiscal policy, monetary policy are both going to be needed to uh, to address this. And, um, you know, the country uh, two, two years ago was uh, basically energy independent. Um, now we've drawn down our strategic petroleum reserves. Uh, there is some that a part of that reserve has been targeted when I talked to one of our Uh, top energy analyst Tom Marchetti and some of that's earmarked for sale so you're talking about a few hundred million barrels left in the strategic petroleum reserve and we're refining it and shipping a lot of this stuff over to Europe to try to help out in Europe at this point in time but as much as I like to help Europe I love going there and everything else Uh, The Strategic Petroleum Reserve was not a world Strategic Petroleum Reserve, but it was a U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And, um, you know, it was paid for and put together by U.S. taxpayers. And I think uh, what we got going on now is not really in full alignment. It's uh, they're trying to keep prices down, but they're going to be draining that reserve to a point in time here in the next uh, several months that it's basically going to be gone. And unless production starts to really ramp, we're going to see a lot higher oil prices. And this inflationary number is going to be even more difficult to address.
1: Yeah, and I just don't see any relief on that in terms of granting permits or encouraging companies to drill. I mean, our own governor here wants to slap a windfall profits tax. You got the EU wanting to tax oil companies by an additional 33%. I don't see that as any incentive for any of the oil companies to produce more oil or go explore for it.
7: 100% agree with you. And I think uh, there's going to need to be some changes, clean air, clean water, all things that everybody universally wants. Um, but we also have to be practical in trying to get there in a, uh, a sensible manner. And uh, I think, We're going to still be dependent upon the hydrocarbons, whether we like it or not here for a while until we can get to this sensible transition. And uh, clearly the, the government needs to be working faster to basically get the resources that people need online. And they're unfortunately not doing that.
1: So Craig, given where we are right now and thinking that this may be a bear market rally, we may have some more pain ahead of us. What would you be doing here? I mean, We just increased our energy position. Outside of energy, anything else that you find attractive here uh, from an investment perspective?
7: Well, we got to think about relative and absolute performance. And I know that uh, nobody can eat relative performance, right? So taking that into consideration, where I've been seeing the best relative returns has been clearly energy on a relative and absolute basis. But I still see some positive relative outperformance inside of the Financial sector has picked up in here a little bit, but also more importantly in healthcare. Some of the large cap healthcare names still are putting up decent relative uh, outperformance and even absolute performance. If you look at companies like Lilly and some of those kind of names, they they still look pretty attractive on the charts. You know, on the weaker side of things, I continue to see staples looking quite weak. Utilities have definitely been rolling over and looking weaker at this point in time. So. I've sort of been, you know, recommending stay overweight, uh, energy, healthcare, and uh, the the technology sector because I start to see some of the smaller, you know, mid cap names in there looking more constructive. And then from the other side of the house, being underweight, staples, the communication media, and uh, uh, utilities have been weaker. But we're officially underweight the services sector, Jim. So those three overweights and those three underweights.
1: All right. As we close, how can our listeners follow the work that you guys do at Piper Sandler?
7: Yeah. If the listeners would like to uh, shoot me an email, craig.johnson at psc.com. Happy to, uh, you know, send them on, put them on kind of a friends and family kind of list, Jim.
1: Well, listen, Craig, as always, it's a pleasure having you on the program and uh, you have a nice rest of the year and hope to talk to you again.
2: California is an interesting predicament because California has done similar to what happened to the Rust Belt in the 60s and the 70s is that they are pricing themselves out of competitiveness. It's a lot easier to move a team of coders from San Francisco to Austin than it is to build a whole new factory in Georgia, South Carolina, or or Mexico. So it's going to be faster. And the thing is that San Francisco also like Detroit, they both had over 25% of their employment in their core industry. In Detroit, it was auto manufacturing and in the Bay Area, software.
6: To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button.
5: At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888 Four eight six three nine three nine, or go to financialsense.com and hit where it says Contact Us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities Inc., member FINRA/SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Green
6: energy and anti-fossil fuel policies have become one of the strongest and most debated topics in recent months as pressure builds on the government to drill for more oil. This week, we conducted what is probably one of the most important interviews we've done all year with book author and investigative journalist Guillaume Petron, who explains that not only have aggressive green energy policies radically backfired as oil and gas shortages around the world have forced nations back to coal, but that even more importantly, green energy is far more harmful for the environment than what most environmentalists and politicians think. Why is that? Because we in the West virtually exported the entire production process of wind, solar, and batteries to China. Guillaume's book details step-by-step the decisions that were made over the years, the devastating impact that this has had on various parts of China, which has very little safety or environmental protections, and how we need to radically rethink the green energy policies that we are pursuing in the U.S. and the rest of the Western world. Because of how important this interview is, we wanted to share the first half of this discussion that Jim Paplaba had with Guillaume on his book the rare metals war, the dark side of clean energy, and certainly recommend that you pick up a copy if you want to understand the untold story that is now starting to come to light. We hope you enjoy the first part of our FS Insider interview with, again, Guillaume Pitron on his latest must-read book. Well,
1: today, some of the biggest policies coming out in the West are green and ESG. But what if there is a darker side to green energy and that's the subject of today's interview we're speaking with guillaume Petrone. he's the author of the rare metals war the dark side of clean energy and digital technologies you know guillaume we're going through this new energy revolution that is dependent most people do not realize on rock-borne substances called rare metals so when you look at wind turbines you look at solar panels you look at EVs, all of these require rare earth minerals. Why do we not hear much about this? Because all we think about is windmills and solar. Oh, that's neat. It's clean. And this is going to you know, save the planet. We focus on that. We're not focusing on what it takes to make this energy transition.
8: Well, uh, thank you, Jim, for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here speaking with you. And uh, I must first... Uh, tell to the people listening to us that the post-carbon world is a metals world. Uh, You don't make green technologies without the recourse to various quantity of metals. They can be abundant and base metals. Uh, You need copper, for example, for making uh, wind turbines and electric vehicles. You need up to four times as much copper for an electric car comparing to a conventional car. You need also copper wind turbines to uh, link uh, to plug the, the wind turbines to the grid. You also need iron, aluminium, zinc, and also you need what we call rare metals for making these green technologies possible. Metals are not rare. You find them everywhere on the earth and even in the depth of the oceans. But the mining space is speaking about rare metals because they are much more diluted in the earth's crust than base metals. And these metals can be tungsten, cobalt. Uh, they can be also rare earths, which is a family of specific minerals and metals, of 15 metals and minerals. Uh, you talk also about a mineral whose name is graphite. These metals are much more diluted, and they have exceptional chemical and physical properties Uh, That makes them really much uh, researched for green technologies. You find lithium and nickel and cobalt and graphite in the batteries of electric cars. You find a rare earth with them is neodymium in magnets for most of the electric cars. Uh, You find uh, other metals which are very critical for solar panels and also for wind turbines. We don't do without these metals, and as you said, nobody knows about it, and we don't know about it because uh, the distance uh, between the raw material and the finished product is such today. There are so many, uh, you know, intermediaries in the transformation process that we don't necessarily make easily a link between the, between the finished product and, and, and the raw materials that were necessary to make them before. And also because there are a few mines today in the United States, a few mines in Europe. And once again, this link between the mining industry and our mobile phones, our EVs, is not easy to make. So we have lost knowledge. We have gained buying power for the last decades, but we've lost buying knowledge.
1: You know, I, I I wrote a recent piece, and a lot of it I quote you in the book, but one of the things that really struck me, and I think this is how we feel in the West, when you see a wind turbine, you see a solar panel, you think, oh, this is green, it's clean, it's not polluting like, you know, if you drive through LA with the refineries, you see the smokestacks in the air putting out this pollution, or you're on the freeway and you see the exhaust from a semi-truck or a car, you don't see that with a windmill or a solar panel but we'll get to this later on but actually green is a lot dirtier and i want to get to that later on i want to quote something that you said in your book and this is you hypothetically speaking to western delegates and you say this transition will cripple entire swaths of your economies and the most strategic at that it will plunge hordes of workers into retrenchment, triggering social upheaval that will shake your democratic foundations. Even your military sovereignty will be compromised. It will devastate the environment in untold ways. Explain what you were trying to say in that statement as we proceed with Green and
8: ESG. The West has accelerated and is accelerating in this energy transition. And and let me be clear, Jim, we need to do the energy transition, right? Uh, I'm a strong advocate of turning to a post-carbon world. But by turning to green technologies, we haven't really thought about how we are going to secure this critical, strategic, rare or abundant metallic and mineral resources for making the green technologies possible. And the true reality is that today we don't have a mineral sovereignty. We don't have a mineral security over these resources. These resources are within the hands of China. And I'm sure we're going to talk back about that later in in the interview. That means that we are dependent upon Chinese supplies for making our green world possible in the United States and in Europe, and that puts us at risk, at economic risk, because if you don't have the resource, maybe you don't, you're not able to make the finished product. You lose the green jobs. It creates t- social tensions, and it's already happening in France with the Yellow Jackets movement, which was, in my view, the first uh, social upheaval turmoil uh, around the energy transition because the Yellow Jackets didn't want to pay more for their oil for these tax revenues to be uh, funding the future wind turbines. There was a question of equal uh, sharing of the effort for turning green here with our Yellow Jacket movement in France. And this movement has been shaking our democratic foundations in Europe, in France especially. I really believe so. Military, defense industries, technologies in the United States, especially are dependent upon rare earths and antimony, But there is uh, no uh, refining of rare earths in the United States and no extraction of anti-money. So there is a national security concern here that has been actually discussed by Donald Trump when he was president. And on this matter, Joe Biden is not doing any different. He's realizing that the United States are dependent upon Chinese supplies, that it puts it puts the defense industry in jeopardy, and actually uh, the United States are rushing for finding alternative sources of these minerals. So my the quote that you have uh, mentioned is a quote that happens, that takes place in the introduction of the book, where I try to highlight, uh, to warn about these new risks that nobody has really understood until now.
1: You know, I want to get to that because one nation, China, has a near monopoly on a key model critical to this energy transition. And we discovered this, Guillaume, during COVID, where basically over the last three or four decades, we've outsourced manufacturing to one country, China. So when the pandemic hit, we had shortages of many key things, from pharmaceuticals to key manufacturing supplies. And it's sort of reverted now we're we're now talking about bringing those factories back it began with donald trump it's continuing with this chip bill of 400 billion that we passed but we're realizing that you know we can't depend on one country for manufacturing but yet our policies are making us totally dependent on one country for all these rare earth minerals basically turning china into an equivalent version of OPEC on steroids.
8: You're perfectly right. We have uh, lived a wonderful age of happy globalization. And the even the, the invisible hand of the market has made it possible for Western consumers to get anything they wanted at the cheapest possible price. And for these decades, China has been the manufacturer of the rest of the world. China would do anything you wanted in the United States or in Europe as long as you would be able to to pay the price for it. But this price would be very cheap because of environmental and social dumping practices in China. And at some point, this cannot happen any longer. China doesn't want to devastate its environment for filling the rest of the world with rare earths and graphite at the cheapest possible price without getting anything in return. China wants to go down the value chain. China doesn't want only to produce graphite, but batteries and electric cars. China doesn't want to produce only rare earths, but wants to produce magnets for the motors of 90% of electric cars. And the American people have just relied upon an older version of globalization, where free markets and the opening of trade barriers would not impede their 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 willingness to 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 buy more and more products. But it's coming to an end to, the, to an end because China wants its share of the cake of the energy transition and keeps the metals for itself in order to go down the value chain. And this is where it puts us at risks in the Western world, a risk that actually we wouldn't get the resources for making the green transition possible. One of the things that uh, you talk about, rare
1: earth minerals in this digital world, and it's not just solar panels, EVs, or windmills. I mean, you think of all the smart devices we have today from smartphones, smartwatches, iPads, laptops, all this digital world that's part of our modern world today. When we think of technology, a lot of them require rare earth minerals that, uh, once again, uh, we're dependent on one country for this.
8: Yeah. In fact, the Western world used to be uh, very much active in the mining space. Back in the 19th century, Europe was standing for more than 60% of the world mining production. And uh, until the 1930s, the United States also was a strong mining power. But progressively, the Western world didn't want to pay the environmental price of mining. Mining is always dirty. There is no green mining. And the US consumers, who are also US citizens, uh, just lobbied very hard for the last decades in order to have the mines away from their territory. As long as some of the countries, such as China, would produce these rare earths instead of the United States and feed the rest of the world with these strategic minerals. The United States used to have a rare earth mine back in the 90s, 80s and 90s, uh, was named Mountain Pass. And Mountain Pass was operated by an American company, was named, was named was Molycorp, and these mining activities were happening in California. And due to environmental reasons, the mines, this specific mine was closed. Today, this mine has reopened. Maybe we'll talk to you about that later. But at the time, this mine closed. Same in Australia with Linus, uh, which was operating a, a rare earth mine in Western Australia. And same with France. France was uh, refining half of the world's rare earths in the city of the Atlantic coast, where them name is La Rochelle. But due to environmental reasons, uh, because refining of rare earths uh, generates radioactivity, these mining activities, these refining activities were partly closed in France and everything was relocated and shifted to, to China and China has paid a huge price for refining and extracting the metals that will become green and then we in the United States and Europe say that we are clean but that puts us in a situation where we are dependent upon a few countries for our supplies of these resources. Most of it, China which is an OPEC on steroids, as you said, but also the Democratic Republic of Congo, which produces most of the cobalt, which is absolutely strategic for batteries. We also are dependent upon Russia for some specific supplies of uh, palladium and nickel, which are used notably in cars. We are are dependent upon um, supplies of South Africa for platinoids, and palladium, uh, we don't produce anything else anymore. So the question is, how do we uh, go back to the mine and how do we reproduce what we've lost in order to be sovereign again?
1: You know, the other thing that struck me about this, uh, because I've been investing in the mining sector for several decades now, but you t- you take a mine and you take a look at those big caterpillar earth moving equipment, whether it's tractors, uh, big giant trucks, it takes fossil fuels to run them. It takes fossil fuels to run the operating plants that refine these minerals. So you, you can't have one without the other. I just don't see you know, a 10-ton uh, truck being run on batteries during the day when you're running a mining operation.
8: You're perfectly right. But once again, we just don't have a single idea about what the mining is uh, because we don't have uh, – mines anymore in the united states or very few of them in europe but as you said there's always a cost to making manufacturing green technology because you've got to get the resource from the from the earth in the first place the thing is when we use a green technology you know the green technology doesn't emit any co2 when you use it so you're clean when you use it which doesn't mean that on its life cycle from the mine to the waste area, the clean technology has not produced pollution. So either it's a material pollution, extracting uh, the ore from the earth, from the ground, refining it means uh, lots of uh, uh, pollution in the, for the soils. It can pollute waters. Uh, you use chemicals for separating uh, the rock from the ore. Uh, you also so it emits so so the the water which is being used for the refining process uh, may contain heavy metals and other chemical products and you also need electricity and this electricity for all this refining and extraction process needs to be produced somewhere so either you produce it from a nuclear power plant or from a gas power plant or from an oil or a coal power plant but at some point, you need to produce electricity, and because most of the electricity today comes from fossil fuels, gas, oil, and coal, uh, you emit CO2 in the mining process in order to manufacture an EV or a solar panel. And because these technologies are made of metals which are mostly produced in China, silicium metal for solar panels, graphite for uh, batteries or rare earth neodymium for offshore wind turbines. And because in China, the electricity mix is made by 70% of coal and oil, there are CO2 emissions in this process in the first place, which we don't see. So there is no zero carbon technology. There is a zero carbon technology only when you use it. But if you take into consideration the entire life cycle of such a technology, once again, from the mine to the wasting area, to the waste area, well, it emits CO2, and you have to take that into consideration.
1: Yeah, because in your book, you talk about one solar panel generates 70 kilograms of carbon dioxide. And with solar panel growth growing at 23% a year, that's about 2.7 billion tons of carbon emissions in the atmosphere. The thing that really struck me is electric cars require far more energy to produce than a conventional car. Uh, So you you talk about, for example, lithium batteries, 80% nickel, 15% cobalt, 5% aluminum, steel, copper, manganese, steel, and graphite. So they're four times more energy intensive than industrializing conventional cars.
8: Conventional car requires six times less metals and minerals than an electric vehicle. And to manufacture an electric vehicle, this process is much more polluting than to manufacture its equivalent working with oil. Then the good news is that when you use an electric car, you don't have to fill the, to fill the tank with oil. You have to charge the battery, but not to fill the tank with oil. So after you drive some kilometers then uh, the two pollution lines cross at some point. It becomes more interesting from an environmental viewpoint to use an electric car than to use a conventional car in terms of CO2 emissions. And that all depends on the country where you are because that depends on the kind of electricity that is being used uh, at 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 the charging station. So if you're in Norway or in Quebec, where 97% of the electricity comes from hydro power plants, well, uh, you know, your car will emit much less CO2 emissions during its during its entire life cycle uh, than as a, a, a thermic car. But if you are in countries such as India, Australia, China, where most of the electricity is made of coal and oil, then the CO2 emissions during the entire life cycle of a car of an electric car uh, are still a bit less than conventional cars but not that much and it's far from being clean so once again it's such a difficult assumption to make that an ev is by itself clean green responsible sustainable all these words are just pure greenwashing and sorry to say that way jim But the energy transition is the most incredible greenwashing operation in all of our history. Because we have pretended to make the world green back in Paris in 2015 when we signed the COP21 Paris Agreement. But we just have relocated all the pollutions to poor countries which are paying this price for the rest of us to pretend we're clean.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it's it's not just the producing of EVs, all the mining that's involved. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, Guillaume, yesterday talking about how we need to upgrade to a smart grid because wind and solar are intermittent. So we have to have a smart grid that's going to be able to take that intermittent power and direct it where it's most needed. And they're talking about trillions and
8: trillions of dollars to power this grid. Yeah, In fact, you don't do any energy transition without digitalization. The thing with the energy transition is that it relies on uh, alternative sources of energy. There is not always, uh, the the sun isn't always shining and there is no always wind whenever you need. So that means that the electric grids are getting much more complex. You have a much more diverse, uh, much more diverse sources of energy, of electricity coming in the networks, and much more different ways of using such an electricity uh, uh, when, when, when it goes out of the network. And in the middle, what you'd like to do is store the electricity. That would be the best way to make sure that the supply meets the demand real time. But storing electricity as at, at a large scale is today impossible from a technical viewpoint. So what you need is to pilot with digital technologies and networks in such a way that actually uh, digital technologies can make sure in real time that a demand at a specific moment is uh, being uh, met by, uh, by a supply of electricity. And thanks to that, you can expect some savings of electricity by 10 or maybe even 20%. But this digital technologies also need the same metals exactly the same metals that we've just mentioned before uh, for uh, making a smartphone for making uh, manufacturing a server and for uh, you know uh, building uh, copper cables so we are in this energy transition relying on two families of technologies clean technologies on one hand digital technologies on the other hand which require the same minerals and it means that you have to dig even more and we have to understand that if we want to drive in electric cars heat ourselves with green electricity we'll have to dig deeper there was a paragraph you talked about
1: and i didn't realize this but it really made me think there is something like what 10 billion emails are sent out every hour which requires 50 gigawatts of power or the equivalent of 15 nuclear power plants. I mean, we don't think about it. We send emails every single day, but we don't think about the energy it takes to send those emails. That really struck me.
8: Yeah. And first, to send an email, you need a phone. So you need to manufacture that phone or that computer. And you may find up to 70 minerals in the latest phones uh, sold by Apple. And then uh, to send an email, you need electricity. And the electricity uh, comes from somewhere. So we go back to CO2 emissions of emails. And we may consider that on average, an email is emitting 50 grams of CO2, which is the equivalent of a car running for, uh, you know, 150 meters. But there is nothing such as virtual technologies. Talking about dematerialization is a complete hoax. You need lots of minerals to make digital technologies possible, and you need 6% of the world electricity to run these technologies. And these technologies worldwide emit, on average, 4% of world CO2 emissions, which is more than planes. So we must be careful when we talk about virtualization, about dematerialization, when we talk about putting our data in the cloud, all this wonderful world makes us believe that our activities in the virtual space don't harm the environment, have no impact, but that's perfectly untrue. It leaves a huge impact and digital technologies are, in my view, set to become one of the most important environmental challenge of the next 30 years.
1: Yeah, I want to move on to something that's also important that you mentioned in your book, and that is rare earth magnets and how critical they are to not only uh, green, but also military technologies. We used to lead in that area, but now uh, three quarters of the magnet manufacturers in the US are gone. In fact, one of our main ones, I think you talk about China Bottom. Uh, talk about magnets, where they're used, and how important they are from everything to cruise missiles to M1 Abram tanks.
8: Yeah, uh, I speak about the story of Magna Quench, uh, which was in the United States such an important uh, company. And a very strategic one because MagnaQuench was necessary. Was a company which was producing magnets for the defense industry, among other clients. And uh, the United States, as you said, uh, you know, concentrated the production back in the 90s. Today, the magnets are being produced by China, most of them. China holds 87% of the world magnet production, and that's also a sovereignty which has been lost. The United States now want to reproduce magnets and there are some talks at the political level to reopen new uh, magnet-making sites in order to regain what we've lost in the meantime. But that makes us very much dependent upon Chinese supplies for these technologies. And these magnets are also being used by the F-35 jet fighter. And uh, when it comes to, you know, depending upon China for such an important component of such an important defense technology, that becomes the big problem. Uh, this is why the United States first have not imposed any trade sanctions to China when it comes to magnets. Magnets are still being uh, exported from China uh, to the United States. And also that brings a question of how, the, once again, the United States will be able to reproduce these magnets in order to uh, put their own magnets into their own technologies without depending upon Chinese uh, supplies.
6: So that's the first half of our interview this week with Guillaume Petron. To listen to the full discussion, go to FinancialSense.com and hit the subscribe button. Again, we highly recommend adding his book, The Rare Metals War, The Dark Side of Clean Energy, to your reading list. Well, over the past month or so, we've been talking about how the financial markets are getting very close to a breaking point. And that is with the very big spike that we've seen in borrowing costs, that is interest rates, starting to have a clear impact, not just on the markets, but also on the economy. Today, we're going to discuss this in depth with Chris Paplava. He's our CIO here at Financial Sense Wealth Management. And Chris, you were showing our team a series of different charts. We're going to have these posted where this interview is located on Financial Sense about what we're seeing with the big pickup in financial stress levels currently. We've been talking about, again, how markets are getting very close to a breaking point. What are you seeing currently?
4: Well, one of the things that we've discussed is the difficulty in the treasury market this year, where you've got foreign central banks selling treasuries to prop up their own currencies. You've got the Fed selling treasuries to shrink its balance sheet. And at the same time, you've got record debt issuance because of all the debt that was issued in response to COVID. So we definitely have a pretty significant supply-demand mismatch. And what that has done is effectively push the VIX for the bond market, beyond 2020, you have to go all the way back to the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009 to see this level of stress in the U.S. Treasury market. So the Fed is directly responsible for the stress because number one, they're, also, they're selling their Treasuries, but in addition to that, their aggressive hiking campaign is pushing the dollar up and foreign currencies down which there's kind of creates a negative feedback loop that causes foreign central banks to sell U.S. securities to then free up cash to prop up their currencies. And on the cycle goes. And what we're also seeing is not just stress in the treasury market, but as I mentioned, because of the strong tightening by the Fed, which creates a sharp move in the dollar, we're seeing a lot of volatility in the FX market or foreign currency market. And if you exclude 2020, Again, the last time we saw this high was when the U.S. debt was downgraded in 2011, or you have to go all the way back to 2010 with the Greek debt crisis, or 2008 with the Great financial crisis. So the point being, when we look at the bond market, we are seeing some of the highest stress levels in quite some time, and the same thing goes for the FX market. Now, when we look at the VIX for the S&P, that is not as high as the other markets, uh, the bond and the currency market, but that too is elevated. Currently resting around 32. And in 2020, got as high as 83. So we're way off those highs. Uh, and We've been higher before in 2016, 2011, and 2010. So when you look at how stretched the various markets are, it looks like the equity market is showing the least amount of volatility. But I think a lot of that has to do with active management plus hedging that a lot of, I believe, portfolio managers have hedged such that they haven't had to dump securities into an illiquid market to get defensive. But uh, the point being is that we are seeing pretty high stress levels, and I believe we're gonna really start to see it in the corporate sector. For example, with the sharp move in interest rates of late, when we look at triple C bond yields, so these are distressed debt in the U.S., right now the triple c bloomberg index has a yield to worst of 17%. So imagine that your your company, you're basically bleeding through your cash as the economy slows down and to finance your operations you either have to tap the market and issue new shares or you have to issue debt. And these companies that are issuing debt are doing so at a 17% interest rate level that is exceptionally high and it's very hard to run any kind of a profitable business when you're paying interest rates of 17%. Now in 2020, during that crisis, triple C rates got as high as 20 to 22. And outside of that, in the um, significant uh, corporate stress that we saw in 2015, 16, they also got as high as 20%. So uh, we have been higher, but the point is we're pretty elevated at this point. And even when you go to single B-rated corporate debt, the current yields on that are 10%, down a little bit from a week ago where they got as high as almost 12%, 12.5%. But still, I mean, we're talking double-digit interest rates that the lower-quality corporations are having to issue debt at. So this is very difficult for them. And it's part of the reason why I believe that we have seen a real drop-off in debt issuance by corporations this year compared to last. Uh, Number one is they were trying, I believe, to avoid issuing debt at all possible, given the high rates. But there are some times where you've gone through your cash, you've gone through your credit lines with banks, that there's really no other option to either issue equity or issue debt. And uh, they're doing it at very unfavorable terms at this
6: point. You've been noting with us in the smart macro segment ever since late last year, when a series of sell signals were issued on every single major U.S. index, that it's time to move defensive, raise cash, and be prepared for major volatility that would take place this year. That turned out to be spot on. That's what we've been doing here at our own company, Financial Sense Wealth Management. At this point, given what we're seeing with financial stress levels and how we are getting closer and closer to a breaking point, it sounds like you know, you'd still be sticking with that defensive cautionary message at this point.
4: I think so, Chris, until we see the Fed finally indicate that they're nearing the end here. We know monetary policy acts with a lag in the economy. So, you know, the rate hike that the Fed did in September hasn't even really fully been felt yet. And, for example, you look at the housing market. You've got mortgage rates north of 7%, the highest we've seen in over a decade. And housing activity is plummeting. And it was plummeting when rates were at 5% and plummeted further when rates were at 6%. It's gonna plummet further with rates at 7%. So you know this, the stress and the tightening that is already in place has not filtered through the entire system yet. And so the Fed is, needs to be cognizant that its actions impact the financial markets with a significant lag. And it's basically fixated on inflation, which itself is a lagging indicator. Whenever you see inflation in prior economic cycles, inflation peaks during a recession, not before. So for the Fed to want to see a peak in inflation, a significant one, could imply that we could very well already be in a recession. It's exceptionally rare, if ever, that you see the inflation rate peak before the recession does. So that's why I feel that essentially the idea of a soft landing is completely off the table and the Fed really needs to start to go slow here or it's going to push the market to extremes and you're going to start to see more accidents. I mean, we've already seen that with the Bank of Japan intervening. We've seen it with the pensions in uh, UK, which are starting to blow up and w- why the Bank of England had to intervene. We're going to see more and more interventions as essentially the financial markets, both the US and globally, start to have some accidents. And uh, you know, the analogy I kind of liken it to it's like a submarine that's kind of at its maximum depth level. And any further than that, you, know, you risk the issue of, uh, of leakage and, and uh, water coming on board. And that's kind of what feels like the Fed is right there at that level. You're starting to see some bulkheads you know, collapsing. And if the Fed goes any further, I think you're going to see a lot more water coming on board the U.S. financial system.
6: Well, there's some news that just came out this week that Germany has seen a really big pickup in the number of defaults and bankruptcies. Of course, Germany, Europe, seeing lots of trouble with the spike in electricity prices, obviously, the shortage that they see with natural gas and fuel and all the things that are happening there. So, Europe is really one of the main places, the epicenter. I would say, of a lot of this uh, financial stress that is currently underway. That being said, you know, we spoke with Variant Perception this week on FS Insider, and they had some interesting thoughts. I mean, they basically said that their tactical short-term indicators, most of them are on buys now. So on a short one to three-month basis, they think we could see a year-end bear market rally. Their longer-term indicators looking out six to 12 months, Are much more cautious. That is the leading economic indicators, which we of course follow and use for managing our portfolios, as well as liquidity measures, are still pointing downwards. So they're still on that defensive side in alignment with us. But they also said this is the thing that I want to bring up to you, given some of these charts that we're going to post. They see on a two to three year time frame. So this is looking at longer term on a structural basis. They follow what's called their capital cycle index. They are still sticking to the commodity super cycle thesis and they do still see energy being a really good place to be just given the fact that we see such low inventories. And again, we're going to have some charts where we show this. And that even in the midst of a recession, they believe energy will still be An outperformer. Can you tell us about what you're seeing from your vantage point, you know, with energy inventories and kind of how we're positioned here in our own firm?
4: Well, you know, the problem really, Chris, goes back, uh, I'd say 10 years where we had a peak in oil prices, most commodities in general, back in 2010, 2011. And with that peak in the cycle, you saw a lot of management tighten their belts to basically make it through that prolonged bear market of, you know, nearly 9 to 10 years in commodity prices. And with that and the big shift towards green energy and climate change, you've seen a real lack of investment in traditional fossil fuels as well as base metals. Also, the big concern that I have, and I'm sure variant perception others have, is what is likely to be a severe energy shortage in the coming years, that will likely lead to higher prices of all types of energy. You know, when I'm looking at the OECD countries and looking at their oil inventories, they're at the lowest level since 2005. So we're talking a 17-year low in oil inventories, and obviously, economies are much bigger and larger than they were back, you know, 17 years ago. But it's not just, you know, it's it's a global story, not just a U.S. story. We all know oil inventories here in the U.S. are are fairly low. For example, when you look at gasoline inventories, we're well below the five-year level at this time of year. Looking at the five-year seasonal average, we're setting a new low. Uh, And this goes back, you know, looking at 2015 to to 2019. So uh, inventories are low for gasoline. Inventories are low even for diesel. And this is typically when they should start to be building. So we've got low levels of gasoline, we have low levels of diesel, uh, both you know abroad and here in the US. And now I know this is a crude measure, it's not you know perfect, but one of the things I do is I look at total crude oil inventories divided by the number of miles driven by vehicles in the US. It does kind of give you a general idea of when you look at how much we have in inventory relative to how much we're driving, we're setting a new record low in terms of how much oil we have relative to the miles that we're driving currently. The prior low was set in 2000, 2001. We're now below that. And the data I have goes back to the early 80s. And unfortunately, as Europe is figuring out, if you do not have energy, you don't have an economy. I mean, California is pushing electric vehicles, but yet we don't, uh, California doesn't have enough electricity production to always charge those vehicles. Uh, and for example, you can't heat your home. I mean, you've got Germans literally going out to the forest to chop down wood because they're worried about not having enough fuel to heat their homes this winter. You cannot have an economy without fossil fuels. You can't have production for food without fertilizers. Otherwise, you're going to see a reduction in crop yields. So the idea that we are suddenly going to go green without basically a backup or have enough electricity production or consistent baseload energy It's just folly, and we're going to have these issues all over the world unless we, as Jamie Dimon says, go the other way.
1: What do you think our nation's near-term energy strategy should be in terms of
7: traditional energy sources like oil and gas?
3: We aren't getting this one right. The world needs 100 million barrels effectively in oil and gas every day. To do that, we need proper investing in the oil and gas complex. Investing in the oil and gas complex is good for reducing CO2, because what you've all seen is that because of the high price of oil and gas, particularly for the rest of the world, you've seen everyone going back to coal. Not just poor nations like India and China, Indonesia and Vietnam, but wealthy nations like Germany, France, and the Netherlands. CO two is getting worse. We have it completely backwards. America is the swing producer, not Saudi Arabia. And and we and we should have gotten that right starting in March. It's almost too late to get it right, because obviously these are longer term investments. <laughs>
4: Our Strategic Petroleum Reserve came out of the crisis of the 73 oil embargo. And to not be held captive again by uh, OPEC, the U.S. used 60 large salt caverns across four main sites, two in Texas, two in Louisiana, to hold as much as 727 million barrels of oil. And that was done in case of emergencies to basically support the economy and support our industries in case there was ever an oil shock. In 2020, I mean, we were bailing out almost every industry in response to COVID, but the one industry we refused to bail out was the energy industry. And during the time, President Trump uh, had a directive for buying oil to fill the strategic petroleum reserves, which he said we're going to f- uh, fill it to the very top. But Senate Democrats nixed that idea Saying that it was a three billion dollar bailout for oil producers, and that was part of the uh, stimulus bill that would pass the Senate in, on March 25th of that year. So it was a two trillion dollar relief budget, and Senate Republicans were looking to allocate of that two trillion dollars, three billion to go towards filling up our strategic petroleum reserve. And at the time, Trump said he was going to fill it right back to the top, basically maximum capacity. And remember, at the time, oil prices briefly dipped into negative territory. I mean, there was no better time in history to accumulate oil reserves when oil was in negative-to-single-digit territory. And uh, that that idea was nixed, unfortunately. And you can imagine how timely that would have been if we actually followed through with that. But, you know, not only, Chris, did we not refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve as Trump wanted to, By not bailing out the energy industry, essentially U.S. refinery capacity fell. And several refineries went out of business in response to the uh, crisis of COVID where we weren't driving and oil prices fell. They went out of business never to reopen. So we actually now have a lower refinery capacity than we did going into COVID again because we did not bail out those industries that needed it most And the problem now is that we're all facing the pain of that decision. So Biden can release oil, but he cannot release gasoline. We don't have gasoline strategic reserves. We don't have diesel. We have essentially oil. And so the release of the SPR has pushed oil prices down, but it has not pushed gasoline prices down as much. And again, that simply has to do with capacity. It doesn't matter how much oil you release if there's only so much that you can refine into diesel and gasoline. And so that was a strategic mistake by the U.S. in 2020 to not bail out the energy industry because we're all suffering for it to this time. And when you look at U.S. oil production, given the anti-fossil fuel uh, bias of the administration as well as the House and Senate, were essentially well below the production levels that we had of oil back uh, pre-COVID. And unfortunately it looks if you look at it in the last month or two, our oil production is starting to decline. So that could be a huge problem going forward if we have falling production here in the US at a time when Biden is going to end the release of the SPR after November. So there's a lot of risk I think ahead to a spike in energy prices. Given we are doing nothing to increase supply. Absolutely nothing. And the less we produce here in the US, and the less we have in terms of emergency reserves, the more we're gonna be swayed by OPEC. Um, you know, for example, the US surpassed Saudi Arabia in oil production in 2018. And the US has been producing more than Saudi Arabia ever since. However, Saudi Arabia has been increasing its production pretty rapidly off of the COVID levels, while our production levels have only recouped part of the loss. So conceivably, we could get to the point where even Saudi Arabia may start to produce more oil than the U.S. So uh, that would definitely give a lot more power back to OPEC, which we had taken away by the U.S. Uh, run-up in oil production. So that that is a big concern, is that we're basically, by the short-sightedness of our energy policy, we are giving power back to OPEC. And that was something that we had sought to take away after the 73 oil crisis. And uh, unfortunately, we're, I think we're going in the wrong direction.
6: So bottom line here, we still have record low inventories, not just in our strategic petroleum reserves, but also nationwide. Uh, we also see the same situation for gas, for diesel, uh, for a large number of different liquids and fuels that we need for our economy to keep growing. Um, and most likely, given you know, what we've discussed today, this situation is going to be with us for some time. It's not something that you can just flip on a switch.
4: Well, you know, unfortunately, Chris, the problem with energy prices being what they are and where inventories currently stand, I really do not feel that we're going to see a dramatic decline in energy prices as we typically do during most recessions. And so that's why for us, we remain very bullish on energy and it's an area we plan to continue to have a significant overweight. and may even increase our exposure there, because you know the best hedge against high energy prices is exposure to the energy sector, and uh, it's something that will likely be uh, further increasing for our clients
6: in the weeks and months ahead. Well, once again, we here at Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are active managers around the business cycle using leading economic indicators, liquidity measures, and a number of things that we regularly discuss here on our show for managing client money. And Chris, again, as we've been saying... And telling our listeners here through the Smart Macro segment, ever since late last year, there was a wide number of sell signals that were issued across all U.S. indices. You began warning at that time that we were likely seeing a market peak, which we did. And we were progressively moving more defensive, raising cash in our portfolios and warning that 2022 was likely going to be a very difficult year for investors That has obviously held true. In addition to that, you've also been telling our listeners that in order to hedge against the forces of inflation, which we believe we would see a big wave of inflation hit starting in 2020 because of the massive shutdown of supplies through the lockdowns while stimulating demand at the same time that that one-two punch would lead to higher inflation. And as you said, one of the best ways to hedge against persistently higher inflation is to invest in the commodity space. And that's what we've been doing since 2020. So much of what you've been saying on this segment has been spot on. And uh, as always, keep up the great work. Appreciate you coming on and providing your analysis. And we look forward to speaking with you in another two weeks. Well, as we close out today's show, please remember to spread the word about Financial Sense News Hour with your friends and family. As always, today's podcast is brought to you by Financial Sense Wealth Management, which has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. If you have any questions about our asset management or our financial planning services, feel free to click where it says Contact Us on FinancialSense.com, or you can also call us directly at 888 486
1: in the meantime, on behalf of Chris Sheridan and myself, we'd like to thank you for tuning into the Financial Sense News Hour. Until we talk again, we hope you have a pleasant weekend